0: Welcome to the New Mexico News Podcast, headlines and stories from the land of enchantment. Brought to you by KRQE. Here's Chris McKee and Gabrielle Burkhart.
1: Chris, how do you describe Albuquerque to your friends and family who maybe haven't been here or spend a lot of time here?
2: This is something that came up, actually, when I was about to get married last year, and essentially we had a lot of people visiting from Oregon who had never been here. I am from Oregon. I've been here for about now 10 and a half years. But a lot of the things I told them about were going to the tram, going to all these different kinds of restaurants. There's food, there's culture, there's a lot of outdoors. The weather is almost always really tolerable here. We have our extreme days here and there. But yeah, just gave them a lot of Description, I guess, about, as I was saying, the food, the culture and the outdoors here um, and how relatively easy it is to get to those places, particularly from the airport. I told them, don't worry about the airport. It's, yeah. it's simple.
1: A lot less stress. I feel like visiting Albuquerque when you're coming from like a major city. But did you also give any of your first time visitors any warnings when maybe they were parking their car at a hotel overnight or Going somewhere downtown.
2: Yeah, that was definitely as well. um, Some of the explanation we gave them on our wedding information, so to speak, when we provided it to them, we told them, you know, don't leave things in your car because it it can be easily uh, targeted. When somebody sees something, they may break your window. I know what's happened to me. Told them, you know, certain hotels to stay in, suggesting that as to, you know, not hear from somebody who accidentally maybe booked a hotel in a bad part of town, so to speak. So yeah, absolutely. Plenty of advice that I think you need to give visitors here because yeah, we, we hear, and we've covered new stories. I know you've covered news stories in the past too about things that haven't really gone well for first time visitors.
1: Yeah, for sure. And there are a lot of beautiful things in our city. So I don't want anyone to think, you know, we're bashing Berkey or anything, but for those of us who have lived here a long time and reported the news for a long time, between the two of us for over two decades now. I think we can also agree that Albuquerque has a crime problem, and that's often a focal point of conversation when we talk about ways to improve things in our city.
2: It is a central issue we hear about during an election cycle or from law enforcement community leaders talking about potential solutions to things like crime, drug addiction, and homelessness. But there's one office in particular that New Mexicans and locals look to when we're talking about our local criminal justice system. That is specifically the Second Judicial District Attorney's Office here in Bernalillo County.
1: And today we're joined in studio by DA Sam Bregman, who was appointed to this position by Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham at the start of the year. DA Bregman, welcome and thanks for joining us.
0: Thank you so much. It's great to be with you all.
1: So just a little bit of your background for our listeners. You were appointed, like I mentioned, to the position by the governor to fill the vacated seat of former DA Raul Torres, who won his election to become New Mexico's attorney general. You've graduated from UNM School of Law and at this point have nearly three decades of trial experience practicing both criminal and civil law, most recently operating your own firm. But before we get into our main topic questions, I have to just acknowledge the other part of your background for listeners who maybe aren't familiar. You're also the father to Houston Astros third baseman, Alex Bregman, and we're recording this episode two days after the ALCS were you at game 7
0: I was at game 7 and and it's it's true I'm now known as Alex's dad not really <laughs> Sam Bregman <laughs> Yeah
1: well he he played a good good game
0: Oh listen I'm 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 very proud of all my children and certainly Alex uh, has been on the big stage last several years 7 to be exact and in the show and it's been it's been a lot of fun obviously to watch him play baseball and root for the Houston Astros
1: Okay, so when you came into this position as district attorney in Bernalillo County, we know your initial plan was to finish out that two-year term and not run for re-election, but you've since changed your mind on that. What changed for you?
0: Well, I was very sincere at the time that I only wanted to do this to finish the term of uh, the attorney general's previous term at the DA's office, but once I got in the job, I realized that we have some amazing people that work there in the DA's office. I realized we were putting some things in place that were making a difference. And I've never been a quitter. I don't. I didn't want to start something and then just say, well, I'm done. Um, I want to see this through. And I am human. I've changed my mind. I know there may be a few people out there that will hold that against me. And that's okay. I understand that. But at the same time, I think We are starting to move the needle on certain things when it comes to crime in Albuquerque and Bernalillo County. And I want to follow through. I want to finish the job. One of the things that obviously people know you from
2: is your past as a, basically a private attorney. And, you know, I think this came up when you were first appointed to the role. People thought private attorney coming now into a publicly elected office through appointment, how different has the change been for you? Obviously, you're still in the courtroom, but you're on a so to speak a different side of things.
0: Yes, and I will say this: I mean, I started my career, quite frankly, in the DA's office years ago when I was a young lawyer out of law school, and I I remember it as probably my favorite job I ever had until the one I have now. <laughs> hmm. In in between that though, in between those two stints in the DA's office, I I have been in private practice and. And I will tell you that I think one of my attributes when it came to practicing law was that I always was a fierce advocate for my clients. And I get to still do that in every way, shape and form now. But my client is the people of Bernalillo County. And I'm a fierce advocate for the folks in Bernalillo County. And when it comes to their safety and when it comes to the crime problem that we do have in Albuquerque. So I'm going to there is a difference, perhaps, when it comes to the actual prosecution of a case, whether or not you're sitting there next to a defendant or whether or not you're representing the state of New Mexico. But I can tell you my passion is just as much, if not more, for the, for the folks of Albuquerque.
2: And I think we'll get a little bit more into the specifics about the things that your office has done over the last several months, but, but maybe first broadly... Could you give us an idea of how you see yourself differing in the direction of the DA's office from your predecessor, Raul Torres?
0: Well, I have no criticism of my predecessor, the attorney general now. In, in fact, I think he did a lot of good things, but I'm a different DA. Obviously, I like being in the courtroom. I love, I mean, that that was one of the real attractive things of taking this Job, the opportunity to work with young prosecutors and seasoned career prosecutors was something I didn't want to pass up. The idea that I can pass along, perhaps, a few tidbits here and there or talk about, in general, how we prosecute cases to get better results, how we present cases to a jury. What is success in the DA's office? And talking about those kinds of things with, with prosecutors in the office, I i really love focusing on that i believe it's we we have a fantastic group of people there and i'm there to enhance their abilities i'm there to make sure they have all the resources they need and that's what i'm focused on
1: one of the big things that we've heard in the news this year i know is also concerning to parents is juveniles found with guns on campus and you've been pretty outspoken about there being zero tolerance for this how are you approaching this issue and making that message clear to the people that need to hear this, you think?
0: Several months ago, I wanna say it's probably four or five months ago now, we, we brought together a bunch of our community partners when it comes to APS, law enforcement, including BCSO, APD, the US Attorney's Office. I, I can't imagine there a bit, there's a bigger nightmare for a parent than to think that there may be a gun on campus where their child is attending school. I made it very clear that we will have a zero tolerance for guns on campuses. It's just unacceptable. I can't think of anything that's more dangerous for the community. So we announced, we came together, and we announced that there will be zero tolerance. If you have a firearm on a school campus, you will be arrested. I don't care if you're 14 years old or 40 years old. There are no exceptions. There may have been other policies in the past, but that's changed. We will seek out and get an arrest warrant immediately. And that person will be arrested because we are going to address that right away. We're not going to wait till some tragedy happens. We're not going to send them home and then say, come back later to school or anything like that. We are going to hold whoever brings a gun on campus accountable.
1: And aside from... Being arrested, what is the ultimate penalty for a juvenile having a gun on campus?
0: Well, for anybody, it's a fourth-degree felony. Having a firearm on campus is a fourth-degree felony. We take that extremely serious, and they will be charged as such. For juveniles, the children's code is different, perhaps, than the adult code. It's 18 months is a fourth-degree felony. Children will be held accountable, and we will ask for them to be incarcerated. Have you seen, you know, since that initiative,
2: so to speak, what is the progress you've seen and and held towards that?
0: Part of that initiative is not just about arresting individuals who have a firearm, but also we've posted every, working together with the county, by the way, and the city and APS, we have posted every single school signs that make it very clear that there is zero tolerance there is no guns allowed on campus we have and we are starting up i know that in the month of november i will be speaking to some several assemblies the da's office is going into classrooms and assemblies to try and get the message out not just about guns in school but overall about staying out of the criminal justice system and staying away from fentanyl and things i mean the the whole gambit of of what we needed to to make sure we're letting young people know about and educating them the best we can. But we unfortunately have arrested several individuals for having guns on campus and we've arrested adults. They're being charged with adult crimes and they will be held responsible. In fact, the folks who have had, The adults so far who have had a gun on campus have have been held and will be held until trial.
2: I want to turn towards one of the other big issues that we're seeing here in the county, and, and particularly in Albuquerque, shoplifting. It's obviously another big topic. We heard a lot about it from even the previous administration and also the prior AG, AG Raul Torres. We hear about it even now with the idea that petty shoplifting isn't necessarily what is going on, but rather this is what we call... Organized Retail Crime, ORC, and that that is having an impact on businesses' abilities to stay open, keeping their merchandise. It's also caused public safety concerns. We obviously have seen several retailers even shut down for business in Albuquerque from the Walmart at San Mateo to soon a Walgreens at San Mateo and Central, and then as well a Kohl's recently closed at Coronado Center. All of them, I think, have kind of poked and prodded around the idea that retail crime has been an issue for each one of them. Wanted to ask you how your office is handling organized retail crime and
0: shoplifting cases, because I understand there have been some changes in this realm. It's a great question. And I can tell you, I'm out in the community a lot on purpose because I feel like the DA should be out in the community a lot and listening to folks, the single biggest issue when it comes to crime that I get asked about is shoplifting. And what are we doing about shoplifting? Way back when I mentioned I was a DA right out of law school, we used to prosecute the DA's office, had prosecutors prosecuting misdemeanor shoplifting cases in metropolitan court. Soon after I took this job, I started focusing on, on, on this very important issue and realized the fact that for the last couple of decades, misdemeanor shoplifting cases have been actually officer prosecuted, which means that the officer who oftentimes doesn't witness anything but comes in either issues a citation or makes an arrest, they're asked to be the prosecutor in the case. And police officers, by the way, the hardest job in America, I believe, is being a police officer. They are not trained to be prosecutors. They're not trained to how to get evidence into into a courtroom. They're not, I, I don't think it's appropriate to task them with making sure all the witnesses show up for a particular case. To the contrary, I want police out on the streets. So, I made the decision in starting September 1, and I'm sure we're close to 100 cases we've already entered now. The DA's office will enter our appearance. There will be a prosecutor for every single shoplifting case in Bernalillo County, and that includes every single misdemeanor. So we have we have 14 prosecutors in Metropolitan Court who handle misdemeanor crimes ranging from DWI to domestic violence. Also they're now doing shoplifting cases. Officer-prosecuted cases not only took police off the streets, but the overall problem is we weren't holding shoplifters, and it's not the cops' fault, but overall we were not holding shoplifters responsible. We had a 15% conviction rate. Obviously, if 85% of the people who are committing misdemeanor shoplifting are just getting away with it and there are no consequences, the system wasn't working. So we've changed that on the misdemeanor level. I will tell you the state legislature and the governor got something else done that was, I think, very, very important: uh, the new organized retail crime bill that's now law, which allows us to aggregate if somebody's a, re- a repeat offender, a frequent flyer, and they keep committing misdemeanor shoplifting crimes, we get to aggregate them. In other words, add them up and charge them now with a felony. And Organized crime you mentioned as far as what are we seeing? We're seeing is it just somebody's just shoplifting? I mean, I, I'm not concerned with the folks, the small number of folks who might be shoplifting food or something like that. I'm concerned with obviously anybody who's continuing to go in and brazenly take things off the shelf and walk out of the, the store without a care in the world and think they're scot-free. We are going to hold shoplifters accountable. We are going to make sure that we charge them with a misdemeanor. Where appropriate, we're going to charge them with felonies. And I will tell you that we've already charged, I think, close to 100 misdemeanors as far as the DA being involved in misdemeanor trials, but also we've charged probably close to 40, maybe 45 cases now when it comes to felonies under the new law. And we are going to have an effect. Shoplifting is extremely important. It's not just bad for business. As you mentioned, there may be some stores that have said we're no longer keeping that store open because it's too much crime. Whatever their reasons are, we know, and I've visited with, I've been out personally and visited with the folks from Target who gave me an amazing tour, but we know for a fact that it's not just bad for business where we're losing millions of dollars, but it's bad for anybody in the store. And people ask me, well, what do I do when I see a shoplifter? What, what should I do? Well, the one thing we don't want anybody doing is confronting anybody. We don't want a shoplifting something over, you know, something over materialistic property stuff turn into violence for someone and someone getting hurt. To the contrary, we will prosecute everybody that we possibly can for shoplifting, and we're going to hold people accountable. Now, if someone is shoplifting because they're an addict that's trying to feed their addiction. We want to give them an opportunity to get the help they need, the treatment they need, whether it's mental health or drug treatment. But if someone is participating in an organized retail crime, we're going to go after them. We're going to go after their organization. We're going to get to the top. We're going to stop it. APD and BCSO and state police and HSI, all kinds of groups are really focused on this the New Mexico Chamber of Commerce is focused on it. I know I could go on and on about shoplifting right now, but it's such an important issue to the community. We are going to get a handle on it. It is going to get better.
1: And it has a ripple effect. I mean, you mentioned the 15% conviction rate. It sounds like some of the approach, too, is changing the culture around that if, hypothetically, you know, we get that improved and... Maybe criminals don't think, oh, I'm just going to get away with this, right? Is that kind of the, the message as well?
0: Absolutely. It has to be the message. And the message is, yes, if, if, if you're just shoplifting something small because you have an addiction problem, you're trying to get money to feed your fentanyl addiction. I understand that we're going to give you an opportunity to get better. We're going to give you an opportunity to perhaps be diverted out of the criminal justice system. But if you're a frequent flyer, uh uh-uh. we're going after you full bore. We're going to prosecute you. We're going to ask for jail time because there has to be consequences for criminal behavior. If there's not swift and certain consequences, then people, if there are no consequences, people feel like, I can just keep doing
1: this. And that's a good segue to my next question, which is, you know, we hear a lot about repeat offenders. And one of the things that we often hear from law enforcement who gets frustrated maybe hearing that somebody they just arrested got released is that catch and release, you know, is a phrase we hear often criminals and police maybe believe that somebody arrested should stay in jail for some length of time, seem to get out a short time later. But one of the things that your office has done is file more pre-trial detention motions. And seemingly prosecutors in your office are also winning more of them. According to a report from the UNM Institute for Social Research from earlier in the year, it said that the Bernalillo County DA's office is filing about 95 pretrial preventative detention motions a month this year, and about 60% of them were being granted but then a flip side of that argument that we hear is often, well, you know, innocent until proven guilty and people shouldn't necessarily be punished in jail before their case is adjudicated. But how are you approaching pretrial detention? How do you view this issue? First,
0: first of all, let me say I'm really proud of our prosecutors on this issue. Um, we They are focused. We have been focused as an office on making sure that we hold violent people who have a track record of violence, who are now charged with a new violent crime to do everything we can to give the court the necessary information to hold those individuals for the safety of the community. We are making strong arguments, we're calling witnesses in certain instances during these pretrial detention motions to express to the court how the safety of the community is at stake here and that there is no reasonable condition that these particular individuals can be released on. And our numbers are going up, and I'm very, very excited about that. You mentioned, and this has been the discussion sometimes up in the, uh, up in the roundhouse, we, I advocated for what's known as a rebuttable presumption, but putting that aside for a second. The idea that, of course, in our criminal justice system, someone is innocent until and unless they are proven guilty in a court of law. That is a core value of mine. I've spent my entire life... My entire adult life expressing that value in courtrooms in this city as well as across the whole state in federal court and state court. And the presumption of innocence absolutely attaches to anybody accused of a crime by the state. But at the same time, we also owe a huge responsibility and duty to the people of Bernalillo County. That if someone has a propensity to be violent or quite frankly doesn't give a damn about a court order and what the court's instructing them to do, that they belong held until that trial takes place. That presumption of innocence follows them whether or not they're in or out. But at the same time, I, I was asked the question in the legislature, for example, well, what happens if the person's held and then found not guilty at trial? What do you say then? I say, well, the system works. It does work, and we've had instances where people who have been convicted of the past of killing someone have then been charged with a new crime and, was, and were released. Now, I will say one more thing. In the past, perhaps, and, and others may want to criticize individual judges for their decision. I have not taken that approach. I do not believe that. I'm kind of from the old school when it comes to practicing law. I, I revere judges, I don't criticize them. We make our arguments in a courtroom. And they have a tough job too. They have to balance a lot of interests. Just for example, the issue of how strong the case is, what, what the factors weigh for detaining someone and what are the factors weigh for letting somebody be released pending trial. But our office is focused like a laser beam on making sure that people who commit violent crimes are held until trial.
2: You know, another issue that we have talked to your office about and something that's been made clear over the years is what we know as the rape kit backlog, evidence taken from sexual assault victims, that, in some cases sat on shelves for years, untested, clearing that backlog. Is that another goal of this office? It is from what I understand, but just to kind of ask you, posit that question, and what has that entailed so far?
0: It it is very very important. I can remember all the way back in my past life. I was also a city councilor in Albuquerque, and I was I helped start the the sane nurse program here in Albuquerque, the sexual assault nursing examiner's program. Um, sexual assault is a is just a horrific crime. It is something that is unacceptable, and unfortunately, a lot of rape kits were. We're set on shelves and not tested, but we're doing everything we can in our office. I'm, I'm so proud of what's called our Saki unit, a sexual assault kit team. It's really a cold case team now in, in a big way. We have indicted just this year, 11 new cases, and separate from those 11, we have convicted nine other cases this year. So proud of the work they're doing. We have special agents that work on that every day. Together with a team of lawyers that are just amazing. And you know that we we indicted someone for three rapes who was a school bus driver. He's charged with three rapes going back to the nineties, the early nineties. It doesn't matter how old the case is. We are going to do everything we can to bring the person to justice and give those victims a small sense of justice. And I I know it's delayed. But we're not letting up. We're going to keep going. And, and that's very important. And I know the victims appreciate it. But more importantly, we have an obligation in the district attorney's office to do everything we can to hold people who commit these horrific crimes accountable.
2: Yeah, I know we recently spoke to you. One of our reporters spoke to you in regards to, you know, cases, again, as you had mentioned from the 90s, I think even the late 80s, there is no statute of limitations issue there. either. Not,
0: not that effect, Not that affects that, no. Yeah.
2: Staff-wise, do you need more prosecutors and investigators to deal with that? And as well, looking more broadly, do you need more prosecutors, investigators for the office in total? What's your current vacancy rate?
0: Our our current vacancy rate is pretty darn good, actually, but it's it's not okay with me. So when I took this job, I said my number one priority was to take care of the prosecutors in the office and increase the numbers. We were We were down below 80 lawyers at the time, 80 prosecutors, authorized positions of about 125, but only budgeted for about 100. I've hired 43, I think, as effective of last week, 43, maybe 44 new prosecutors since I took office. I'm very proud of that because we have a a fantastic group of people who are doing everything we can to recruit good lawyers, and they become great prosecutors. And I could hire another 20. And I'm asking the legislature to increase the budget. And that's because, and it's a very it's a very simple equation. If you have more prosecutors, it's less case per prosecutor. When I walked into the office, we had homicide prosecutors with 50 homicides apiece. That's just an astronomical number. It's it's unacceptable. They're now down into the low 20s, which I'm very excited about. But they if we can get them down in the teens. What that means is each prosecutor can spend more time on each case, making sure that we're doing the best we can, presenting the evidence, witnesses, and everything else that a jury needs to see before they make the determination. And by the way, when it comes to success in the DA's office, it's not always about conviction rate. It's about whether or not we are doing justice, and justice means are we presenting a case to a jury that is a good case to let them make the decision on guilt or innocence. And I, I know that when we have more lawyers, they get to do a better job and cases are presented better. Homicides, for example, is not a, it's not a file you pick up the day before and say, hey, time to go to trial tomorrow. These take tremendous amount of work and effort by our prosecutors who do that job, but reducing that caseload makes for all the more success.
2: Yeah. And the investigation, obviously, that goes into it as well. Yes, We've heard from Kyle Hartsock, who used to be in that DA's office before you got there and then moved over to APD. You know, he's talked about just the volume of evidence, digital evidence, you know, looking at Snapchat and Instagram chat logs. It's extensive. These cases take a lot.
0: 25 years ago, when I was a young ADA, that we didn't have all the Snapchat, all the video evidence, all the social media evidence on people's phones. Yes, you're right. It's a tremendous amount of work now gathering that, corralling it and making sure we're putting an understandable case in front of folks.
1: You kind of mentioned one of the questions I had, which is caseload. I remember having that conversation with former DA Raul Torres about how many homicide cases those prosecutors were handling. And it just, yeah, it sounded unattainable. What's the morale like for the prosecutors that you do have? And what is your biggest challenge you feel like in recruiting more prosecutors to this office?
0: Well, two things. I I think the morale in the office is really, actually, really good. I'm very proud of the morale in the office because I think I I have a little bit to do with that. And that that is the sense that I, I back up my prosecutors. They bust their tails. They work their tails off. And I want the whole world to know about it. And as you can tell already, I brag about them because they're really great great lawyers. And so, how do you recruit? <laughs> First of all, let me just say this, criminal, uh, the DAs across the state are down in numbers. We're actually up since in the last 10 months, but the criminal justice system, unfortunately, is down when it comes to lawyers across the country. We have focused on reaching out to the law school and making sure we get that next graduating class from the law school, if you will, interested in criminal justice. And it's not, so, if you don't want to prosecute, you want to be a public defender, great. But if you can get into criminal justice, I think it's it's a wonderful training ground. It was a great training ground for me. I went out into private practice and enjoyed a successful career for, for a couple of decades. And I I loved getting that experience because if you are in the DA's office, for example, as a young prosecutor, you get immediate trial experience. You get comfortable in that courtroom. You get comfortable with the rules of evidence. You get comfortable with criminal procedure so that you understand it. And then down the road, you're going to trial. And most people, most lawyers, even lawyers will tell you, most lawyers are scared to death to go in the courtroom because it's, you know, it's not someplace they're in every day. Prosecutors on the other hand, they spend a couple of years in our office and I can tell you they've got so much valuable experience and understanding of how the courtroom works. It's a great place to work.
1: One of the last topics I think is important to cover is the problem of drug trafficking, we mentioned human trafficking, guns coming over the border, and also fentanyl. The DEA and federal agents say that this is coming over the border in droves from Mexican drug cartels. The pills, fentanyl pills are smaller and easier to smuggle than some of the other drugs that we've seen in history. You've traveled to Mexico and met with leaders there. How did that trip go and how is that relationship working?
0: Thank you for the question. I, I, uh, I re- uh, not only did the governor appoint me to be the DA, she also <laughs> appointed me to be the chairman of the governor's organized crime commission. And, and one of the biggest things we've been doing is reaching out to the states in Mexico that border New Mexico, the state of Chihuahua, the state of Sonora. We've We've gone down and visited with our law enforcement colleagues on the other side of the border the DPS secretary for both, the attorney general for both states, the governor of Sonora I met with last week. These have been really productive, great meetings, building relationships so that we can share intelligence, so that we can, they can feel confident that they can give us information and we can act on it in a responsible way. We need that information to stop the drug trafficking coming across the border to stop the human trafficking, which is a horrific crime in itself. And we're all seeing too much of that. And we know that fentanyl is a huge problem in our town. It's a huge problem in this entire country. The cartels don't have to grow this opiate. They just, they just stir it up and manufacture it to get the precursor from China or whatever. The overhead's very low now for them. The overhead in, drug, uh, in human trafficking is very low for them. They are making millions and millions of dollars in these illegal criminal organizations. And we are going to continue to work together with our friends down on the, on the other side of the border that are willing to work with us. And I think it's really important that those relationships can continue. The governor has really emphasized that she is focused like a laser beam on making sure that we do something about gun violence, drug trafficking, and human trafficking. And that's the purpose of the Organized Crime Commission right now. And I'm excited to be a part of it because I, I know, I can't talk about all of it, but I do know that it's going to make a difference in the long run.
2: Is it a new approach? It seems like it is. I mean, obviously we've had partnerships with our neighbors for a long time, but this idea of, you know, the DA's office, criminal justice figures going and working with Mexican officials to try to work with their states and their justice and their information
0: is that a new approach? I think it's a huge emphasis on the the governor wants it to be a huge emphasis on a new approach when it it comes to building these relationships. This is not a criticism of of the federal governments, but we kind of can view that and see that maybe that hasn't been working the greatest lately in the last, last couple of years or so. We want, though, not to give up on the process. We have to work with them to get a handle on this because too many of our citizens are overdosing on on fentanyl. Too many of our citizens are addicted to fentanyl that would never be in the criminal justice system if it were not. We're losing young people at record number to gun violence, to fentanyl use. It's it's just unacceptable. And I, I know that's been a real focus of this governor.
1: Has the intelligence sharing already begun?
0: Yes, but I'll leave it
2: at
1: that. <laughs> okay. Good to know.
2: <laughs> One of the things you talked about personally with this appointment very early on, you mentioned wanting to get in the courtroom, prosecuting some cases in Bernalillo County yourself. It sounds like you have been able to do that. I believe Danny Aldez was one of the cases you worked on. So if maybe you
0: can just give us that picture. Have you been able to do the work? I have. So, Danny Aldez was a, uh, a defendant accused, he was a teacher accused of raping a second grade student of his in a closet in a classroom. And uh, I was able to Co-chair that with an amazing prosecutor, Rebecca Reyes, and we obtained a conviction. And in fact, I believe sentencing is for him is scheduled for this Friday, and he's facing up to 50 years, I believe, on that count alone. There's several other counts in which he, or uh, several other charges with other victims that. He is currently facing as well.
1: A former APS teacher accused of raping multiple students is now heading to prison for decades. Danny Aldez was sentenced today in one of several cases he's facing. Aldez, who's now 47 years old, was ordered to spend the next 57 years in prison where he'll also be forced to take rehabilitation classes.
2: And was that the only case you've, you've been able to get in on? That's so the far? only
0: case that I've tried over in district court. I've been involved a couple times over in the Metropolitan Court on some misdemeanor cases is working with our with our uh, I I shouldn't say our baby lawyers that's not a, that's not an appropriate term but baby lawyers but our young lawyers sure sure and a
1: little greener a yeah. little
0: greener but no I I uh, as much as I can be in the courtroom that's where I would love to be this uh, this job does have its administrative requirements that I focus on and in the legislature and things like that and working with everybody involved the and the, the judiciary working together with even the public defender's office quite frankly, on things that we can all do better in the criminal justice system to get a handle on this. Because I don't care whether or not you're a public defender, a prosecutor in the judiciary, the legislature, we all want to see crime go down. We all want to see crime, the crime issue get better in, in Bernalillo County. And I think working all together, we can do that. We can accomplish that.
1: Well, over the last half hour, we've talked about a lot of things that your office is doing and that you specifically are involved in. And I remember having a conversation with you earlier in the year and thinking, like, how is he going to have time to also to do all these things and be in the courtroom? But is there anything that we didn't ask you about specifically that you want people to understand about what your office does or or what you're about?
0: Well, I just I want to reemphasize that people... There's close to 300 individuals that work in the district attorney's office, and every single day they get up and come to work and, and try and make a difference to make this a, a safer community. As the chief law enforcement officer in the county of Bernalillo, I am thrilled to work with our partners, APD, BCSO, state police, or the federal agencies, the U.S. attorney's office. I'm told anecdotally, I don't know this for a fact because I haven't been doing it for the last 30 years, but I'm told. That law enforcement in this county has never worked better together. We are communicating. We have a CSU agents in our office that are that are killing it. There, we're, we have a warrant roundup right now that's that's doing really really well in collaboration between BCSO APD, and, and our special agents in our office. Uh, things are getting better, and I just want I want the folks of Burnley Auto County to know that you have a tremendous amount of people who really care and believe it or not because it's a it's a it's a big boat in the ocean if you will when it comes to crime and it takes time to turn it and but we are turning it things are getting better and i'm very confident that i'm saying that that things not only are getting better but they're going to continue to get better
1: DA Sam Bregman thank you
0: thank you very much
2: Special thanks again to District Attorney Sam Bregman. We appreciate him joining us for that wide-ranging conversation. Yeah, there is, uh, I think, one of the things that he had mentioned at the end of his interview, some kind of a difference in the level of cooperation there for criminal justice. I think one of the most pronounced things you can obviously see is there's no longer the battling, it seems, between APD and the DA's office that once existed. Also, APD and the Bernalillo County Sheriff and the city of Albuquerque. That was also a tenuous relationship sometime over the last several years. We obviously know that all the rank and file officers oftentimes uh, work together, especially when they respond to scenes together, but it's a whole different matter when it comes to administrative sort of office politics and general directions that these departments go. So it's a new chapter. It's interesting to watch.
1: At least from our view. Yeah. It looks like everyone's getting along a little better in, you know, again, from our view, we see these people in, in the same room a little more often these days, but yeah, we appreciate him taking the time to talk with us. If you all have any topic ideas or somebody that you'd like to hear from on our podcast, Feel free to reach out. I'm gabrielle.burkhart at krqe.com via email and gburknm on social media.
2: I'm also at Chris McKee TV and Chris. at krqe.com. Thanks for listening.